Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. speak a little bit about being a pro-life activist. And you all go to uh, Franciscan University of Sumo, which is the pro-life university, and everyone's very excited when they meet you because you go to the pro-life Catholic university that's good, that's good pro-lifers. Uh, the problem is you always go to a Catholic pro-life university. That's also your problem. And we, I find a lot of times, and our, and our team finds when uh, we meet students who uh, attend really great, strong universities, it's it's uh, much more of a difficult transition into work in the into working life um, because you are insulated here, uh, and you have this unique advantage of being around people who are think like you. Uh, but then, when you're not in that world, the question is, do you think? Uh, or swim? And how do you talk about your faith in the workplace? How do you talk about your faith to others? That's why the Students for Life group here spends a lot of time talking about apologetics. While you're here, taking advantage of this atmosphere, learning everything you can so that when you go back home and see your friends who went to state or whatever, you can have a good dialogue with somebody who may not share your faith. Um, but you want to talk to them about the pro-life movement. Um, and so I, and I think that we often see uh, students for life groups who are really strong at Christian uh, universities, but often those are small groups, and people kind of take advantage of it. Like, well, yeah, there's students for life here, and they're doing great, so I'm going to do this other club. I don't need to be part of students for life. We don't really have pregnant women here on campus. No one here is ever having sex, ever. There's no sinners, whatever. <laughs> Right? I've, I've talked to university presidents who feel this way about their Christian university. And I have to be like the bearer of bad news telling them somebody on your campus is sinning and there, there's probably sexual sin happening. Um, so really the question is how do you get more involved? What can you do? The Students for Life group here is very strong. I remember a couple years ago, I was um, the Wilberforce mentor for Grace, who Grace Dagler was here. She was a vice president of the group. And she, she said it was almost like running for office at Students for Life was like this big popularity contest because it's such a big group and everyone wants to be part of Students for Life. That's a good thing. Um, but it also means you have unique challenges of getting more people on your campus involved. So I'm going to talk a little bit tonight about um, our generation, what I, I think we've been uniquely called to do, um, but then I want to go a little further and give you some big picture items of things that I think Franciscan University can lead nationally on, uh, and then maybe open up for some questions, suggestions. I brought my pen to write down all your good ideas with. So the first thing I want to start with is kind of like the old school story of David versus Goliath. I was um, watching a TED Talk a couple months ago. Do you guys watch TED Talks? They have a Roku app. That should be like your TV. It's all you ever need is TED Talks. Um, so Mal Malcolm Gladwell, uh, he wrote the, a couple of really, really great books, uh, Tipping Point, things like that. He wrote this new book, David versus Goliath. Have you all seen it in bookstores? He, he goes back and he analyzed, you know, the story of David versus Goliath, the story of the underdog, right? And he, and he looks at all of these uh, case studies. Now, I have to tell you, I didn't read the book, I'm a millennial, I just, very short attention span. That's why I love TED Talks, okay? So in the TED Talk, in 10 minutes, he explained the entire premise of the book. I don't need to read the book. And I saved myself like 15 bucks. So in, during this talk, he was talking about, you know, he's promoting his book, he's talking about the story of David versus Goliath, where we, we in modern culture, believe, you know, this, this is an underdog type of guy, right? So the Israelites and the Philistines are kind of camped out at different edges of the valley. This valley is very, it's a strategically important valley. The Israelites are kind of just hanging out there. David's sent to the front lines by his dad to check up on his brothers because David's like the young kid manning everything back at home. And he's there checking with his brothers. He hears and he sees this Goliath taunting the Israelite army. And he gets PO'd. Like, how dare this guy do this? And he starts asking, why didn't anyone challenge him? Why are you letting him taunt him? 
Um, no one would do it. King Saul, no one would face this Goliath. So David, you know, what we think in modern culture, and, you know, probably still even then, um, no, no one believed him. He said, I'm just going to do it. Very naively said, I'm going to face the Goliath. And we believe this is this underdog, like this is like a million to one shot. There's no way he's going to defeat the Goliath. He ends up killing the Goliath, beheads him, Philistines run away, and they're slaughtered, right? Yay, Israelite army wins. So, but what Malcolm Gladwell talked about is he, he went and met with like these historical guys, and they were talking about like, you know, the slingshot that David had, right? We kind of think it's like this like little kid slingshot, but actually it was... Um, it was a it was a valued weapon in the Israel Israelite army, and he talks about how fast these stones that these these guys were actually able to throw these stones are faster than Major League Baseball pitching with this you know device they had this sling. But it wasn't like the, this little kid. I always think of like a little kid like with the with the rubber band and um, the marble that I found on my bed this morning for my kids. You know like. Like that. Like this was like an actual military weapon. So one of the things that you know Malcolm talks about is okay, first he went in with actually a military advantage because he did have this precise knowledge. He had been training for and with this weaponry for years. But then he also talks about and he and he talked with some of the biblical scholars about some of the scripture and, and, and some of the Hebrew there. And it's, it talks about how David, you know, David was gonna face off against Goliath. And Goliath was actually led down to the valley. And it's a key phrase there in the scripture because um, the scholars actually believe Goliath probably didn't see that well. He was a giant. He was big. But like a lot of giants we've had in modern history, there tends to be like Abraham Lincoln. There tends to be the syndromes that are associated with this giantism right? Um, and he talks about this eyesight. So he probably didn't see that well. He's obviously big. David's this little kid who's fast. They, you know, King Saul tries to give him his armor. Uh, David re refuses the armor. So David's actually fast because the Goliath is all decked out in this really heavy armor. Um, so he actually didn't have as much of, he actually had more of an advantage than we think going into this battle. What was also, you know, I think interesting when we look at the pro-life movement was he believed he was going to win. He had faith that he was going to win. And I think we, you know, often people underestimate that. They underestimate the power of believing you're going to achieve your goals. Now, sports psychology will, will tell you that how important believing you're going to be able to accomplish that goal is and how you're going to fight differently, how you're going to perform differently. So David actually had, Malcolm Gladwell talks about how the moment David enters that valley and he's facing off the, with the Goliath, he actually then has the upper hand. Odds should have been placed in his favor. He had all of these things going for him. And what I took away from that was just that, that belief, the fact that he had been planning and preparing his whole life with this modern slingshot of the time, but then also his belief and how powerful his belief was. Um, and I think that's something that we lack a lot of times in the pro-life movement. I think that's the problem we have a lot of Christian universities is that, well, we have the pro-life group, they do really great things, but I'm going to focus on this. I'm going to get involved in this. Because really, if you all knew that next Friday abortion would be ended, you would act way differently this week. It's because we don't really know when abortion is going to end. Because it seems like this long, off, vague thing, we tend to stop believing it's possible. And that affects our actions. That affects us becoming pro-life activists. That's why you'll see there's a difference in, you know, just a regular old Joe Schmo pro-lifer who might go to the pregnancy center gala once a year. You know, he'll maybe talk to their friends a couple times a year about being pro-life, will vote pro-life, and the person who goes out every single week. Right? There's a difference there. Um, there's an old guy. He passed away a couple years ago. He was a salesman, and he gave all these motivational talks. I remember one time I downloaded one on Amazon. His name is Zig Ziglar. And it's like a famous, he's always quotes, like, I was like, who is this guy? And I like, I Wikipedia him. He was just like this really successful Southern salesman. 
Um, but you know, he's a great name, so everyone like remembers his name, right? But he had a great quote, and it touches base. I, I felt like when I was reading that David versus Goliath, and I was listening to Malcolm Gladwell's talk, I, I thought of that quote. He said, you were born to win, but to be a winner, you were born to be. You have to first plan to win and then prepare to win. Then and only then you can legitimately expect to win. This year, our conference at Students for Life, some of you were stuck in the turnpike because we had to cancel the conference, sorry. Um, the theme was, and the theme was in San Francisco where it was really nice and we were able to have a West Coast conference, was born to win. And this was, that was the theme. And I actually took it from this Zig Ziglar quote because I thought, that's such a powerful statement. It's a powerful statement for our movement. And it actually shows how we are different than previous generations of pro-life activists. It's actually, to be honest, what kind of pisses them off about us. There's a lot of older pro-lifers I've met who, are, who think it is naive and arrogant to say we're going to abolish abortion in our lifetime. They believe it is the wrong approach to say that. They think it's it's being arrogant of not respecting the 43 years of pro-life activists who have come before us. They think it's dismissive towards all of their labors and all of their struggles. They also think it's a lie. I've had people who said, well, you're just lying to people. That you're not going to end abortion. You know it, so therefore you're lying. And what's going to happen when you're 70 years old and you haven't abolished abortion? I actually think that's the wrong approach. And if we haven't ended abortion in 70 years, then I haven't accomplished my goal. But I don't think it's a bad thing to say this is what we are going to do. You're always going to do something. And any movement, you're not going to say, we're going to fight really hard, we're going to dedicate all of our lives, we're going to give up things, but we're not going to win. Who the heck would join your pro-life group? Who the heck would join your group for anything? Right? Like, if that was your sales pitch, like, come do this because you're Catholic. It's your duty, but it's not really ever going to happen. No one's going to join your pro-life group. No one's going to join your effort, whatever it might be, if they actually think you're a bunch of losers. Right? It's very, very simple. In social movements throughout history, the talking point wasn't, we're going to lose. The talking point was, we're going to win. We were born to win. We were born to do this. We were called to do this. This is a distinct difference. And I know it kind of will make some people upset, but I think it's very important to do that. You know, I was at this um, feminist majority conference a couple of years ago undercover. Gosh, it was like five years. I think my first, I measure things with kids. I think my first son was born, but not my second. And they, I remember we were there, and there was like three of us. Actually, one of the Franciscan grads who was working for me at the time, Liz, she was with me, and I had my undercover camera on. And there were like 80 people at the National Education Association headquarters. Yes, the NAA sponsored the National Abortion Federation Conference, just a little plug for the NEA. Uh, Dr. George Tiller, the famous and infamous uh, late-term abortionist, was the keynote. And we're sitting at these table rounds, and they had this big banner on their podium. And it said, we are the majority. <laughs> and I was like, really? You paid students away and you have like 80 students here? And on a Saturday, like, you're the majority? But see, what the other side has done so well for so long is they've just taken that ground. They said, pro-life is a minority opinion. Only extremists are pro-life. The majority of women are pro-choice pro because why? You couldn't be anything other than that. That's absurd. When really, and polls show us, the majority is on our side. The majority of women are on our side. The country's actually pro-life. The country morally knows abortion is wrong. The question is moving from morally wrong to making it illegal, which, by the way, I've got some really great statistics we're going to release. We just did some under um, some polling for our organization, and we have 
um, new poll of millennials showing millennials actually think abortion should be illegal in every case except for the three extreme cases, which for, for us is a huge victory. Because for the past decade, we've been winning on the morality grounds. Do you think abortion is immoral? But we've always been losing on the legality grounds. This is a huge step for our movement. But the other side's so good at framing themselves, right? And we're always like, yeah, we're the happy losers. We're the joyful losers. We like being countercultural, and we're going to buck the culture. We're not countercultural. I hate that when people say that. We're of the culture. We are the culture. The culture is pro-life. And I, I know like a lot of us would like to be contrarians and you know the whole like emo thing came out a few years ago and it was like wear everything that I won't wear then people were wearing and they were just doing it because they were against everybody else, right? And then suddenly becoming emo was then popular and then the real emos got mad because then it was cool to be an emo and then they had to go do something else. I don't even know what they've become since, but... I remember that because I was watching it on Facebook. I wasn't a part of it. I was having children. Um, but I was watching it you know, happen. And I was like, but as a pro-life movement, we've got to stop acting like we're the losers. We have to stop acting like we're in the minority. We have to stop doing that to ourselves. You know, when I meet someone who says that they're pro-choice on a college campus, um, I always like act surprised. I'm like, really? How could you, can, can you explain to me how you feel that way? You know, I, it's been a really long time since I've had a conversation with someone who believes this. <laughs> now, I'm a little, I'm a little fibbing, I'm a little lie. But, psychology-wise, it's fascinating because it puts them on the defensive. Because here they thought they were going along with the trend, right? They were being, you know, PC, Everything was good, and I've just put them on the defense, and they don't really know how to answer the question. It's fascinating. I'm so mean. I'm a cruel cool person. But I, want, I like try to get them to, to answer, and they just can't. They, it puts them off their game, right? It puts them off their game. So next time you meet someone who's pro-choice, like, really? How can you feel that way? Even with ultrasounds, tell me, what does this mean? I mean, it's a great way to start a conversation with somebody. You have to be a better actor than I am, but. So, we're in the majority. Now, we know it, and the activists on the other side know it. Now, the rest of the country is still, they think that pro-choice is the term of the PC term. They still think the pro-life movement's losing. Um, they don't know it because they don't see it. But the other side, those who are activists on their side, they know they're losing. You can see it when you go out and see their protests. When we started doing activism event with Students for Life, you know, we kind of we kind of just surprised them. Like so, about eight years ago, we started doing at the Supreme Court at the end of the March for Life. We would do like sign waving. So I always was like bummed out at the end of the March for Life because you're like freezing. You're usually wet. You're grumpy at that time because you're hungry, and you like get to march the Supreme Court, and you like then you're done. There's like nothing. It's like all this buildup, and then uh... so what we started doing is doing like cheering and like yeah, pro-life generation. And we always get in the front of the march so we can hurry up and get to the Supreme Court before everyone else gets there, and we stand there as the entire six hundred thousand crowd walks by, and we're like cheering. You'll hear me on my bullhorn. We're like waving signs and we're chanting. Now, some of the older pro-life leaders got mad because they, they wanted to be somber, and I was like, well, we're going to just out-bullhorn you on that. I feel like it should be fun, right, because we want to inspire you to go home and save babies and then help women and abolish abortion. So we started doing that, and at the time, there were like two pro-abort women. Usually, they're older. They'd have the keep abortion legal signs, and we would just go up, and before you all got there, I would just stand in front of them and refuse to let any photographer take a shot. Because what used to happen in the media coverage was there'd be like one picture of the march, like thousands of people, and they would say, you know, a few thousand. And then there would be a picture of one woman standing holding, the, you know, keep abortion legal in front of the Supreme Court, which psychology-wise, you recognize her more because it's a single person as opposed to a whole crowd. And, and it said, it always say, like, 
pro-choice and pro-choice and anti-choice activists spar off at the Supreme Court. Like that was like the coverage, like half a million to like two people. Now, so we started doing this, and so now there's a couple groups, Stop Patriarchy now, the past three years have come out, and they counter-protest. Last year, they stopped the March for Life. Um, there's actually a really funny picture. It looks like I'm shouting at the entire March for Life because the March for Life got stopped, um, uh, and uh, they were getting arrested, and so we had everyone line up, and then I was leading our students who were carrying the March for Life banner um, in song. Uh, and I'm not the best singer in chance because, so, you know, March Life was... Would any of you guys go last year when it was, like, stopped for 45 minutes? Nobody really knew what happened if you were in the back, but that's because the um, Stop Patriarch people got arrested and the police did an awful job of clearing the road. Um, and so, but yeah, there's a really funny picture. It looks like I'm shouting at the March for Life in my bullhorn. Um, but yeah, so you can, you can see it. You can see it when they're out there with us. Like, the past few years, the Stop Patriarchy group, these other groups are coming out, and these are just wounded, hurt people who are extremely vile. They're very vile. These are the extreme of the extremes. They believe abortion whenever, wherever, government-funded, performed by whoever, doesn't even have to be a doctor. I mean, these are hardcore people. You can see when we go to the Walk for Life, the Walk for Life is actually now my favorite thing to do all year because it's warm, it's in San Francisco, like my second favorite city in the whole world, and there's actual communists who protest the March, the Walk for Life there, which I find so fascinating. I love to go up and talk to them. Um, but you can just see it, how crazy they are, how angry they get, right? They just get angry and they're screaming at you and they're cursing at you and they're trying to spit on you. We were at the Supreme Court two and a half a weeks ago, March 2nd. So the Supreme Court of the United States heard what will be the most significant abortion case in, since 1992. Uh, and this is the Texas Whole Women's Health uh, case. This is where, you know, about a third to a half, no, about half of all the abortion facilities shut down in the state of Texas because of this SB2 bill that was passed a few years ago. So this case is going to the Supreme Court. The hearing, the oral arguments were March 2nd. So we decided to go out there. Of course, we couldn't get some of the, a lot of the pro-life groups actually advertised. So it was just us, like students for life leaders, um, so that we had student groups from kind of the surrounding area. Nobody from Franciscan came, but okay, whatever. Um, and they probably spent at least $100,000 in busing people in, paying people. The pro-life movement, like I said, it was just us. It was like 100 students for life people. Um, and we were totally outnumbered. It was great because we've never been outnumbered before. So our students who are at the March at, at the Supreme Court are going to be my hardcore activists. Anytime I have pro-life students who are outnumbered, outflanked, beaten at something, they come back and are like 100 times better and more active than they ever were. So I'm fully expecting fantastic results in the next year from all those groups. But it was interesting to see it because we had staked out all night. The students were there uh, taking shifts, praying, reserving our, our ground. We had Speaker Paul Ryan. We had you know all these top political people there. Um, all the different pro-life organizations all sent their speakers. They didn't really advertise, but they all sent their speakers to come speak at the rally. We had TV cameras there, and the entire time they're shouting at you and screaming at you. With the students had to, I had the students link arms. So our, you know, our big banner, we have to march for life, we are the pro-life gen, we are abortion abolitionists. We had them down, and we actually used them to form a barricade to keep the protesters out so our speakers could speak. And then the students who were holding that had to have their arms linked because the protesters kept trying to get, I mean, sometimes there was a couple protesters got through because the students had their legs spread and the people were getting underneath their legs. Tina, our vice president, had bruises on her body because for an hour and a half she had to stand like this next to one of my staffers and keep out the pro-abortion protesters who were trying to stand right in the middle of the freaking podium so no one could hear the speaker. At one point, we had a protester rush the stage, take the mic. The mic is a rented system, so I had to try to grab, grab it off of her. I mean, it was crazy. It was completely insane. My husband and I just realized it's here and is hearing all this stuff, which I don't tell him this stuff. It was crazy. I mean, the speaker's security didn't want him to come down, so he was only allowed to speak for like two minutes. You should watch his speech. It was awesome. He said, we are the pro-life generation in his speech. Like, when the guy third in line for the presidency uses your slogan, it gets pretty exciting. Um, people were crazy. Crazy. 
But it was awesome <coughs> because it showed us just how afraid they are. They know they're losing and they're becoming desperate. And this has been something I've been telling our students for life leaders for the past two years. The more we win, the more victories we have, the crazier it's going to get, the more desperate they will become. These are hurting people who have real issues. I mean, you have to be pretty hurting if you're willing to go out and just scream at people all day, push them and shove them, right? There's something underlying going on in that, with that person. And this is something we have to prepare for as pro-life activists, is that it's going to get crazier. There's going to be arrests. There's going to be punches thrown when you're peacefully praying. It's going to happen. But keep in mind, that's a good thing. It's a good sign. It shows us that we're winning. So how can we do more of that, the winning part, and ultimately achieve our goal? Well, going back to our David versus Goliath, we, we, we are the perceived underdogs, but we have real advantages here. The first thing I think we have the advantage of, and the first thing we need to help other people do is that belief, is to have that faith, to believe, to believe that we'll end abortion in our lifetime. Young people helped lead the charge in the civil rights movement and the anti-slavery movement. Look at those abuses that occurred in our country, those human rights violations that were going on for decades in our nation. But we were actually able to end them. The civil rights is still not perfect. We're getting better. But it's a whole lot better than it was in 1950 in the South. We can actually end abortion. There are first world countries, believe it or not, that don't have abortion. And they have cell phones and like TV and women work. Women can vote. It's actually possible. But we have to believe, and we have to challenge other pro-lifers. Your friends who didn't come here tonight because they're like, yeah, yeah I'm pro-life. I only hear, sit here a boring pro-life speaker. They don't believe. I can almost guarantee you. The next thing we need to do is plan. And that's why you're here. You have four years just to sit and think. You have four years to make a plan for your life. That's what you should be doing with Students for Life. It's the planning. How can we change our culture? Starting with our campus, going out to our state, going to our nation. What's the plan? And then you prepare. Let's start practicing now while we're here, while we are in this insulated community, when no one's going to make fun of us if we fail, right? Let's prepare now, because anything we do, we're going to be able to replicate but better, right? I think that's really important. We've been called to do something great. We have you know, this advantage that we're seen as the underdog, but we're really not. We're not the underdog. Youth, you know, youth is sexy. Youth is currency. We know if we can make a whole generation of young people pro-life, the culture in our nation will change. I don't know if any of you were drinking heavily last night after the election returns. I wanted to. I was too tired. There was no point. But if anyone can say anything about what's currently happening in our political system, I think it's very clear that Washington, D.C. is not going to end abortion for us. Right? For a lot of, time, for a lot of years, we pro-lifers have relied on the Republican Party to carry the mantle. Because whether you're Democrat or Republican, you have to admit it's been the Republican Party who, who passes the pro-life legislation. It's the pro-life party that passed the Partial Birth Abortion Act, that's going to pass a 20-week abortion ban, that's led the charge to defund Planned Parenthood. And if you have Donald J. Trump leading the Republican Party, or what's left of it in a few months, you're not going to be able to, to rely on the Republican Party. And it's going to suck, and it's going to be hard. But it's going to be good, because it's going to force Americans to say, what do we have to do in our town? What do we have to do in our state? We can't rely on Washington, D.C. One of the best things from President Obama's presidency has been just that. 
As soon as President Obama was elected, people went back to their states and started passing their own pieces of pro-life legislation, getting active in their communities. We've had more pieces of pro-life legislation passed since President Obama was elected than ever before in our history. In all the years that President Bush, a pro-life president, was president of our nation, we got some great federal things, but we got really nothing done in the states. There's over 300 bills that have been passed in states across the country restricting abortion, making abortion harder, making it less profitable for the abortion industry to operate. So it's how can we change our culture? Because Washington's not going to do it. And that's what we do, right? That's what you do is you're changing the culture. We have to change the culture. Even if we would have the best candidate as candidate for the Republican Party that wins and is pro-life and assumes the presidency in January 2017, we still have to change the culture because what's going to happen in four and eight years? A Democrat pro-abort person will be elected and they'll go back and they'll strip out all the executive orders. They'll appoint their Supreme Court nominees. It, this is how politics always goes. And we like it because it's like a fight and you know you get aggressive with people and argue with your relatives at the dinner table and post nasty things on Facebook and it's short-ended campaigns. You can go back and be friends in November. We like that. But that's how it always is. You're not going to actually affect that long-standing change until we change our culture. So that's why I'm here. What can we do? What can we do starting at Franciscan University to change our culture? I have a couple of things for you. So you guys do an amazing Sawa Council, Sawa Counseling Outreach. You're going on praying this Saturday is the big event, right? You guys are going and you're going to, there's going to be like hundreds of you praying in front of the abortion facility. By the way, it's facility, not clinic. FYI. Facility sounds scarier than clinic. Um, we can do a linguistics talk next time I come home. Uh, so, yes, you're going out to do that. That's awesome. That's what you guys are known for, right? But that's all you're known for. What else are you doing? What else are you doing in the Ohio Valley? I'm a native of the Ohio Valley. The Ohio Valley needs help. What else are you guys doing? I can't tell you how many Franciscan grads I've interviewed for jobs at SFLA. I'm like, hey, yes, you went to Franciscan and reacted to Sutra Life? Yeah, okay, what'd you do? We prayed for, I prayed a couple times a year for an abortion facility. Okay. Do anything else? Yeah, one year I came to the March for Life. Okay. No offense, but I usually hire somebody else. I'll hire somebody who went to a state school, who had to start a Students for Life group, who had to fight their administration every step of the way to just for the right to exist, because I know that person's a fighter. I can't tell when I interview somebody, when they tell me they went to Franciscan, they just went out and prayed a couple times a year if they're gonna be an actual fighter. Because one thing pro-life activists have to have is grit. There was a study done a few years ago of Navy SEALs and the Navy was trying to figure out what type of individuals will make the best seals? So they're trying to figure out how, who they have to weed out. And they did all kinds of physical endurance tests. They did, um, you know, intellectual tests. They were testing these seals on a bunch of different things. They looked at background demographics, where they came from. And the one thing that they determined, they really couldn't find a determining factor. It wasn't really physical aptitude, intellectual ability. It was the one thing it came down to was grit. It was the sheer unwillingness to give up, to always move forward, even in the face of failure. That's what you have to have to be a successful pro-life activist. And that's what I'm always trying to find out when I interview people. Do they have grit? Are they going to fail and bounce back? Because something we don't like to talk about as millennials, we have kind of a problem with failing. Millennials have a hard time failing because we are all special. We all got our 10th place ribbons. I did for track, right? We all had the little star chart and we were all very accomplished young people. But then when we get out in the real world and we fail at something, we can't handle it. 
It's hard. It's called failing forward. There's a book by John Maxwell. He's a Christian pastor, and he turned to motiv- become, became a motivational speaker, and he actually has a book out called Failing Forward. The best people in business, most successful people in business often are the people who had the biggest failures. You can't be afraid of failing. Failing actually makes you a better person. Whatever goal you're trying to achieve, failing helps. You want to actually fail because you learn from failure. You learn much more from failure than success. So the question is, do you have grit? And what's that grit? So the things we can do at Franciscan, and I was just brainstorming today about some big picture things. What can we do that's big? You guys have the big event this Saturday, but what can we do at Franciscan that's big? What can you join Students for Life here on campus and lead? What can you do? So a couple of things I had in mind, and sorry, I'm giving you lots more work, Annie. The goal is everyone here comes to the exec meetings and then it becomes, you know, now, Annie, a little leadership tip is when everyone comes with you ideas, you say, great, now you go and do them, right? It can't all be you. All right, it's delegation. Okay, so first thing I thought about, training camp for young pro-lifers. Franciscan University is known for their camps, right? I live in Minnesota, and they were talking about the Franciscan University camp, which is really funny, because as a Protestant growing up in Ohio Valley, I never knew about Franciscan University. (laughs) I didn't know what it was. I wasn't until I was in high school, I was like I was a junior, I had a volleyball tournament, and we needed the gym. I had no idea what amazing university, Franciscan University was until I moved to Washington, D.C., and I started interviewing. And Franciscan grads were the only ones willing to work with for no money. (laughs) I had no idea. I was a pro-life activist in the community, and I had no idea. What are you doing? One thing you could do is do a summer camp. Do a week. Start out with a weekend. Invite all the local parishes Get the bishop who was at AIM. Is the bishop coming this weekend? I heard somebody saying that. I'm so, see, I'm doing a really good job promoting this weekend, just FYI. The bishop, get the bishop on board, send a letter to all the Catholic schools in the diocese, have him call the bishop of the Wheeling Charleston Diocese, and get all the northern West Virginia. Now, there's a state over here called West Virginia. <laughs> I grew up in West Virginia. You guys always forget about it. It's actually really important. It's kind of cool. We have great history. Broke away from Virginia because of the Civil War and slavery. Whatever. Um, call those Catholic schools. I mean, just start within the Catholic schools. And you all run your own camp. You know enough. You go to Franciscan University of Steubenville, the pro-life university. You have Dr. Lee, who Facebook messaged me today. I got a little <laughs> geeked out. He was at the event and liked my talk last night. I was like, oh, he knows who I am. You have all these amazing speakers. Run your own freaking camp. And get all of these students, RJ and Anna, our regional coordinators and directors, they would come and speak for free at this camp because then they can start Students for Life groups in all of these parish schools. Today in New York City, there was this big meeting. We have the superintendent of the New York City Catholic schools on our side now. We actually have the same donor, so he's trying to impress the other donor. And we're going to be allowed to start Students for Life groups in every parish high school in New York City. It's like the biggest like diocese in the country, I think after LA, the school system. It's huge. Let's do it here. Let's do it here. Start with the parish schools and then move out to the public schools. Equip other Kristen Hawkinses or those sitting around in Wellsburg, West Virginia with nothing to do. Get them inspired. Let them see there's actual a movement to join. When I worked at AIM, when I was a volunteer at AIM 15 years ago, I thought like I was going to go get my PhD, teach government, have some like boring job one day, and then when I retired, I could lead a pregnancy center because I honestly thought like that's all the jobs there were in the pro-life movement. I have to wait years in, in order to fill positions at Students for Life because I need to hire so many people, it's so hard to find pro-life activists who are willing to dedicate their lives to this who have that grit. So can you please go make some new employees of Student to Life for me? All right, next thing. Pregnant on campus. Have you ever heard of our pregnant on campus outreach? It's 
kind of controversial. The old people don't really like it because pregnant on campus might signify that we're okay with sex on campus. We're not, but what we're saying is there's probably pregnant women on campus, right? Women are the most fertile stage of life when they're in college. We know about 80% of college students, whether they're Catholic, evangelical, secular, whatever, are having premarital sex, but yet you never see any pregnant students on a college campus. It's actually very rare. So our pregnant on campus program. Now, I understand it's Franciscan, you're special, and there's probably not the rate of unmarried pregnancies going on here. There are some that have happened, I've heard about them. However, there's things you can do on campus, but then also we can translate them state and national. Yesterday I talked to one of your administrators about we have a problem nationally that Christian colleges don't know how to handle sex and marriage and pregnancy. Because when sex occurs outside of marriage, it's a sin, it's bad. But then what happens when pregnancy results from that sin? And they don't know how to help her choose life and stay in school without feeling like they're allowing the sex outside of marriage to happen. So something that would be really great, and this, I mean, this would be taking working with your administration, is working with the Franciscan University administration to come up with a plan. What happens at Franciscan University when a girl gets pre pregnant out of wedlock? The number one problem we see, and we've had this happen, actually how we started pregnant on campus was because of a pregnancy at Fordham University. First thing that happens is you get kicked out of your housing in most Christian schools. Now at Fordham was interesting, the girl, the young girl who got pregnant, she was there on a scholarship. So when she got pregnant, she got kicked out of the dorms because they said it was a liability to have a prego in the dorms. And she had a scholarship. So then the university said, well, you forfeited your scholarship, your housing scholarship. So she actually ended up having to get an apartment with her boyfriend, which wasn't what we as a pro-life movement would have wanted, because she lived in New York City and couldn't afford an apartment. So it was her, her boyfriend, her boyfriend's mom, all living in a one-bedroom apartment so she could stay in school because Fordham then took away her housing scholarship because she chose to f live off campus after the school kicked her off for being pregnant. What's the policy at Franciscan if a girl gets pregnant? Is she allowed to live in dorms? I don't see how it's a, li a liability if she's pregnant. Now, when you get later in your pregnancy, your eighth or ninth month, you probably don't want to live in dorms because you don't want to go into labor and come back with a baby. But you have eight months to say, we're going to work with you. We're going to find alumni, a professor, a donor who lives in the area who's going to let you live with, us, live with them, right? There's things we can do, and it starts with that housing policy. The housing policy has to be number one. I was doing a retreat to Sisters for Life retreat house a few years ago with pregnancy center leaders in New York City, and they said that the most calls they get every year for girls who need housing Maternity home housing is in May because girls have babies, keep them in their dorm rooms, hiding them from their RAs, and then in May they haven't told their parents they were ever pregnant or had a baby. So then they're afraid they're getting kicked out of their home, so then they don't have anywhere to live. I've met many girls who said, I went to a Christian school and I had to transfer out. I had to transfer to a state school once I got pregnant. One, because they were afraid of the criticism and the judgment they they thought they would get, but two, because they weren't allowed to live in housing anymore, where at state school, it was cheaper to go to state school and they could get an apartment. They didn't have to live on campus. The housing has to be number one. And there's other policies. There's flexible class schedules. What happens when you're in labor and during finals? You know, what happens if you have to, you know, your second trimester and you start having to pee all the time and you gotta walk out of class or your professor's understanding? Like there's things like that that have to be talked about. There's things you guys can do on campus as a group. I saw the diaper deck. Do you guys know you have diaper changing stations in the female bathrooms? You should advertise that. Do you guys have a lactation room on campus? I mean, for instance, you can probably whip out a breast and breastfeed anywhere. No one would care. But if you have a lactation room on campus, it's really important to promote it, even if no one's going to use it. Leave signs of hope. Talk about how we're campus that's friendly towards pregnant parenting women, because if she does become pregnant, if there's a girl walking on campus who's pregnant and is trying to decide, what am I going to do? You want her to see, maybe it's just possible to stay here at school. 
But nationally, what I would like to see is Franciscan come up with a set of guidelines, something that we can take to all those other Christian universities across the country and say, this is what Franciscan is doing or they're trying to implement. Even if you can't even get them all implemented yet, because I know bureaucracy and administration, but saying, this is what we're trying to do. This is what we see our role as Christian universities. You know, I've met tons of pro-life, well, not pro-life girls, but girls on campus and we're you know, doing outreaches to the pro-life group recruiting who've said, I had an abortion, and, and we'll talk about that, and they hate Christians. Every single time it's because their parents are Christian, and their parents took them to the abortion facility. I met a woman a couple years ago who, on our Raw for Life summer tour, who was a, her, she's a pastor's wife. Her daughter went away to college, got pregnant in the first semester, went to the abortion facility. Her boyfriend was, going, was pre-med, who was like, absolutely not, you can't have this baby. The daughter always said she was pro-life. The daughter didn't want the abortion, but they, you know, the boyfriend got the money, drove her, to, drove her to the abortion facility, kindly, very gentlemanly, like, dropped her off. And it was the pro-life sidewalk counselor who started talking to the girl before she went in. She went in, she came out, and it was her and the sidewalk counselor who ended up calling her parents. And I remember this lady because she started crying because she said, you know, I almost lost my granddaughter because my daughter was too afraid to come tell me and my husband because that was her fear. Her, her dad was the pastor. Go back to church pregnant, out of wedlock. What's that going to look like to his congregation? So what can we do here on campus to encourage women who have become pregnant to stay in school? Because if you're talking about social justice, I know you have like a justice club. If you want to seek justice for her and her child, if you want to eliminate poverty, it starts with education. She's got to stay in school. And then what can you guys do nationally? It would be great to say Franciscan University of Steubenville is the leader. And this is what they've implemented at their school for pregnant students who become pregnant. It would be awesome if Franciscan was known for that, to be the haven of pregnant students. You probably get some more, you know, get some more uh, tuition because you get some more girls coming in from the local colleges who'll say, I want to go there. Our Pregnant on Campus website, we have a website, go pregnantoncampus.com, and there's about 600 campuses, and that's all the campus policies. And I can't tell you, you know, I have a full-time person who basically just answers inquiries from the website of girls who are pregnant trying to figure it out. They're just trying to figure it out. Like, how can I do this? Her first inclination is not to go to the abortion facility. It's to choose life, because that's the way we were made. When she runs out of options, that's when she goes to the abortion facility. Uh, a couple of months ago, a couple of really uh, big Baptist Christian universities were applying for Title IX exemptions from the Department of Education because they don't want to have to house transgender students and openly gay students at the university, which conversation for a different time. However, in their letter asking for Title IX exemption, which is the don't discriminate, basically, federal statute for schools, they actually cited the reason why they needed the exemption was because of gay students transgender students, students who've had abortions, and students who are pregnant. Why in God's green earth would a Christian university need to say that they need to be able to discriminate against pregnant students or pre students who have abortion? That is clearly a problem. That's a cry that that Christian university has no, has no way of handling the situation. So that's why we need Franciscan to lead. So there's another thing you can do. The other thing, um, the third thing I want to talk to you about, kind of big picture, is the strike team idea. You guys have a huge Students for Life group, right? You have all these people in your Students for Life group. You need to go to other campuses and do pro-life. You need to be able to go to other cities and do pro-life. You need to go out and be that strike team. And this is really easy. In the 90s, there was a group called Call. It was like collegians activated to liberate life, and they like lived together in a household, guys and girls, and they would like go to the country, and they'd just do different types of activism, pro-life activism. There was a piece of legislation being passed here. There was a protest happening here. In a couple, in probably the next year and a half, Students for Life is going to re try to reactivate a program similar to that, where you dedicate a year of your life to doing this work. And that way we'll be able to send, because our problem is pro-life students tend to be academically minded students and all the best things happen on weekdays when everyone's in class. 
And so I'm always like begging people to stop taking, you know, please skip school today and come to the state capitol. So if we get a call reactivated, we'll be able to just like send this group, you know, <laughs> to kid here all over the country and they'll be able to be our representative when everyone else is in class. But my thought was, why can't Franciscan do that? Why can't you guys be going to cities in Ohio, go to Dayton, go to Cincinnati, go to Columbus, heck, go to Cleveland, and do activism in the cities. Do a sidewalk counseling mission in Cleveland. Cleveland has some notorious abortion facilities in that city. Do activism. Do the counseling. Do the praying. Do a rally. Go to a campus. Do a pro-life display. You guys have these awesome training, apologetics trainings you started a few years ago. Go out and do them in real life. It's so much different than someone telling you what, right? And then even you practicing it with another pro-lifer. Go to the university. I don't know. What's, what's that really? Go to Case Western University. I mean, go to these campuses that are inner city where you don't even have to have permission to be on them and do your pro-life activism. Do your apologetics training. Our team will go with you and help you start groups, or a lot of them have struggling pro-life groups. So get active. Be that strike force team, that rapid response team. When we need you in Washington, D.C., it'd be really great if I could say, hey, Franciscan, we need a van. We need you out here right now. Have a team that signs up to do that. Make sure it's people who are like relatively good in their classes. They don't have to worry about <coughs> um, messing up their final scores because I don't want angry parents calling. Go to our leadership summit. We're having a leadership summit April, April 2nd. You are going at Ohio State University. Go to the leadership summit. Meet the other students for life leaders across the state and say, hey, what do you need? Do you need some new, do you need more people to come be with you when you have that display, that Planned Parenthood project display on campus? Do you need more people at your events? And go and be mentors to those people. All right? Believe you can win. Make a plan to win. Prepare to win. We can win. Faith and Reason Podcasts. New media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.